All right, good morning, Four Oaks. Um, let me assure you, those knives were not real at, at all. Um, we had each and every parent, I'm sure, sign a waiver. I didn't sign one. But anyway, you get what I'm saying. Um, good morning, welcome. Um, I'm Paul Gilbert, the lead pastor. If we don't know each other, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And let me just quickly follow up on something that Aaron mentioned in the announcement video um, about the resources from the Theology and Practice Weekend we had with Dr. Allison. Um, last week, spent um, some time in the morning devotionals, those pastoral devotionals we do Monday through Friday, and use that as a time to, to ask Greg a bunch of different questions about some of the historical backdrop of what was happening um, and how the, the Roman Catholic Church or Protestantism kind of came apart and what was some of the, the, the circumstances of that. And just we took a, took a deep dive. Listen, if that piqued your interest at all, um, just a reminder that we're taking a Four Oaks Reformation trip this um, summer to Germany. I'm going on that trip and helping lead it. And it's going to be an opportunity where um, not only do we get to see some places, but really be ground level, ground zero sort of for the Reformation. Luther nailing up his 95 theses and the Diet of Worms where he took his mighty stand, here I stand, um, before God. And anyway, it's going to be an awesome time. It's not just sightseeing, though. We're going to be doing teaching. It's going to be a great community um, opportunity for those who are going. So if you're interested, we still have some slots. Stop by the hub on the way out. Phil Swartz, who's helping to organize the trip, should give you more information. But this morning, though, Romans chapter 8. You know, literary history is sort of filled with great opening lines of plays or acts or books that are so memorable that we immediately recognize them, right? No one has to tell us the title or who said them necessarily. So, so, so things that come to mind, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Four score and seven years ago, all right? For the Christian um, fictional audience, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it, okay? But my personal favorite, it's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife, okay? Now, now the answers for those of you who are playing at home, of course, Charles Dickens, Abraham Lincoln, C.S. Lewis, and of course, Jane Austen. Well, there is a Christian version of this game, right? There are 13 words which are so familiar for those of you who are believers, for those of you who have grown up in the church, for those of you who have been around the Bible at all, they're so familiar that to say them, you probably, many of you, immediately know where they come from. And, and here are those 13 words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And of course, those come from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And we can say, if the book of Romans is Paul's magnus opus, then Romans 8 is obviously its crown jewel. It's been called by many the greatest chapter in all of the Bible, certainly one of the most well-known. It's, it's as if everything that Paul has been saying in Romans 1 through 7 is building to Romans 8.1, where he wants to make a series of magnificent declarations and it's those declarations, it's this chapter that we want to dig into over these next six weeks. We're going to slow it way down, and it's worth just savoring every morsel of this chapter that we can. If I were to sort of put 
all of Romans 8 under sort of one theme, here, here is what it would be. Romans 8 speaks to us about the absolute security of the believer. The absolute security of the believer in Jesus Christ. Church, God, Paul is going to make a series of just unequivocal, absolute, unwavering declarations about you and me, about our status, about our security, about who we are in Christ and how we know that to be true. It's interesting in the first seven chapters of Romans, the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice. In chapter eight alone, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times and for good reason. Because we're going to find this morning in our subsequent weeks that it's the work of the Holy Spirit through the grace of God, applying the benefits of Christ on our behalf, that gives us our absolute security and confidence in our standing before God. And whether we know it or not, that is our deepest need, to know that we stand before God absolutely, positively, not only not guilty, not condemned, but righteous in his sight. That is, that is the, the prevailing um, animus that drives all of humanity, whether, whether they know it or not, whether we know it or not. It's what we yearn for. It's what we long for. It's what our souls desperately seek for, to know that we, in fact, are under no condemnation. And that's where we're going to go for the next six weeks. But this morning, we're going to tackle the first four verses. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read this short passage together. Paul speaking, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit have, of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let me pray. Father, all of us wrestle with condemnation from our own hearts, from our conscience, from others, our sin, the world. Lord, I really want to pray particularly for those who are under a heavy hand of condemnation this morning. Maybe it's condemnation about who they are as parents or as a spouse or as a worker or, or great sins they struggle with. But Father, show us that ultimately the solution to all these things does not lie inside of us. It only lies in you and what you have done for us. So Lord, we pray that you would do this work in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Three things we want to say about the text this morning and about this passage. We're first of all going to talk about the crucial reality which sort of hinges and is the fulcrum for everything else in this chapter. We're going to talk about the certain reason we can trust in that reality. And finally, the confirmed result, what we hope to see God do in our lives through our knowledge 
through it. So the crucial reality, I'm going to read it again, verse 1. I've already done this sermon once in the first service, and I can tell you I repeat this verse about 30 times, okay? So just go with it, all right? It's the Word of God. It's an amazing verse. And let's repeat it again and dive into it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you've heard me say before, when we see a therefore, we always ask, what is it therefore? What is it pointing to? What's it wanting to, to draw our attention to as it points forward? And what's interesting about this, this, this verse doesn't make the most sense off the hills of chapter 7. Remember we left off last week where Paul's talking about this great battle of sin that rages within each of us, and it just sort of seems like he pops out this verse in verse 1. And what do we want to say about it? Well, on one hand, it is certainly, it seems like Paul's been leading us all this way through these first seven chapters. Everything he's been saying has sort of been building to this point. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes that this is probably most likely connected back to chapter 5, verse 1, and I'm really encouraged that Dr. Lloyd-Jones agrees with me on this, okay? So let's go back to, to Romans 5, 1, and remember, Paul's talking about the benefits of justification, right? The fact that we've been declared righteous, not guilty, and, and Romans 5, 1 says it this way, that introduces this section. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So think about Romans 5.1 and Romans 8.1 as sort of two pillars. They are counterparts. They're two spectrums of a theological polarity. And I've been waiting since seminary to say that in a sermon, right? Two spectrums of a theological polarity. In other words, what Romans 5.1 affirms positively, Romans 8.1 renounces negatively. See, justified and condemnation are both forensic terms. They both come from the courtroom. So when, when those in ancient Rome and Greece would be arguing about righteousness and unrighteousness and guilty and not guilty, these were concepts that they would use. And we, as we've talked about before, justification, just as a reminder, means it's the declaration of being not guilty. Now, condemnation is a different sort of reality. See, a condemnation is not just the fact that, that a defendant stands in front of a judge and is declared guilty and thus they are condemned. That's, that, that's not exactly what it means. It doesn't refer so much to the declaration that someone is guilty. It refers to the impending punishment that they are to incur by virtue of being declared guilty whether that's to go to prison or whether that's to be executed or the, whether that's to pay a fine. That's, that's the nature of the word. And when Paul says there is no condemnation, what he's specifically saying is that there is no punishment for the believer. There is no penalty to be paid. There is no bondage to be born. Now, I want you to think to a time in your life when you had the feeling of being under condemnation. And by that, I mean not just that you thought you might be found guilty, but the fact that you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt you were guilty and you were in dread of the consequence or the punishment that was coming your way and you knew it was coming. So get that fixed in your mind a second. For me, 
I go right back to eighth grade physical science. Her name was Mrs. Strickland. Her first name was Myra Jo, and that's all you need to know about that situation. And she, she couldn't see well. And so for some reason, she would take off her glasses when she wanted to read something and would put her face about this far away from the page. And that was always our signal that it was time to fire up the spitball war, which we would do. And I remember there was one particular day, it was an epic battle, right? The lights went down, the, the gross biology video from the 70s came on, and we were all grimacing, but we, we, we kind of did this all-out war. Well, we thought we were funny, we thought we were cute, but word on the street was the next day that someone had ratted us out, right? We, 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 had, we, had, a, we had a spy in the midst. Her name, I still remember to this day, Jody Woy. And let me just say, I haven't seen or spoken to Jody in like 40 years. Jody, if you were listening to this, God loves you. That's all, that's all I want to say about it. He absolutely does. But I remember that day when they began calling us out of one class to go over to the office where Mrs. Strickland was waiting. And they did this one by one. And it's never a good sign, this was back in the early 80s, when the teacher had a witness with them. Because back in the day, we, they still did the whole paddle thing full on, right? This was not a little ruler on the hand. This wasn't a little timeout in the corner. This wasn't the dunce cap, right? This was the full on, full wooden thing with the holes drilled inside so it would increase the areas. I mean, it was the whole thing. And I remember as they called us out one by one, we were hearing the punishment inflicted upon the first person who went out. Wham! Wham, wham. And there was just this sense of what impending doom, right? I felt this sense of dread. I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. They know I'm guilty. And I'm about to be punished big time. Now, you just need to know that you just learned something that my parents still don't know to this day. I just wanted to tell you, okay? i just coming out with it here late, late, late in life. What Paul is saying is that we are no longer have to live under the dread of the sentence from God. There is no impending doom for the believer. Think about the times that you know you're guilty and, and punishment is coming and that somehow you miraculously escape, right? The bell rings or your parents don't find out. Or that something slips through the cracks. And just think about those times when you have such a sense of relief, right? I can just, oh man, that was so close. That's what Paul is talking about here. See, he says, the, the fact that he says there is therefore now no condemnation assumes that at one time we were all under condemnation and justly and rightly that there was a sense of impending doom and punishment hanging over our head. And what Paul is saying is that by virtue, Christian, of the fact that you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ today, there is now, therefore, not just a lessened degree of, con of condemnation, not just 50% less condemnation, not just 99% but that one little thing that you wrestle with, that you struggle with, just hovers over your conscience to condemn you. Paul says, uh-uh. In fact, the word, and John MacArthur makes this, note, word, uh, makes this note here, the word for no is not just the simple Greek no. 
It's the version of no, which means absolutely, positively, 100%, no way. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, to emphasize this point, Paul actually begins chapter 8 with that declaration. And I want you to listen to how he ends chapter 8 and how he wraps these together with a bow. Romans 8, 38, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because what punishment does everyone fear the most? What, fun, what punishment does the guilty most fear? And I would say, if we want to put it all under one rubric, it would simply be this. We all fear the punishment of separation. I don't want to go to jail. I'll be separated from my family and friends. I, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to go to jail because I'm going to be separated from my freedom. Uh, I don't want to go to jail because I'm going to be separated from my physical well-being. I fear for my physical safety or my life. I think everything that we, that we ultimately wrestle with in the depths of our soul in terms of condemnation is that I don't want to lose my marriage. I don't want to lose my kids. I don't want to lose my relationship. I don't want to be separated from my job. I don't want to be separated from the things that I hold dearest in my life. I don't want to be separated from my way of life. Do you see how that works? And Paul wants us to be clear, no condemnation means there is nothing that can separate you from your Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Paul says we were separated, right, but now. And I, lo I love that phrase, but now. That word has the sense of like uh, announcing the arrival of a king, so in other words, before we had no peace, but now a new era of salvation has been inaugurated. Now, Paul says, even though it wasn't true before, now it is true. There is no condemnation if you are in Christ. See, the reality of no condemnation, see, is something that is applicable to you right now. You know, last weekend, as Dr. Allison kind of unfolded for us the, the differences in biblical theology and Roman Catholic theology, one of the things that he reminded us in the Roman Catholic system, there is ultimately no assurance of faith. You are continually moving in and out of grace, depending upon if you've confessed your sins or if you've done penance for mortal sins. And what Paul is saying is that that's not the gospel. See, this verse is the foundation of the rock-solid assurance that every believer has in Jesus Christ. Christian, if you are in Christ this morning and trusting in him, you are not in and out of grace. You are not in and out of forgiveness. You are not in and out of, of your relationship with God. And this is such a word that so many of us need to have seeped into our souls. Because I ask you this morning is not do you feel condemnation? We all do. 
but where do you feel it? Where do you experience it? Where are you walking in it? And the question is, how can we be so sure, Pastor Paul, that this, in fact, is true for me? Let's look at point number two, the certain reason. Verse two says this, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, if I were to ask you to define what it means to be a Christian or what is a Christian, there, there are several ways you could answer that that I think would, would all kind of lead us in the, in the same direction. We might say, well, well, Pastor Paul, a Christian is someone who is forgiven, and that's true. Pastor Paul, a, a Christian is someone who trusts in Jesus Christ. Absolutely true. Pastor Paul, a Christian is someone who gathers with God's people and studies his word and prays and is generous with their life. And of course, that is absolutely true as well. But that's not the foundational, those are not the foundational things that make you a Christian. The foundational thing that makes you a Christian, look back at verse two, is the fact that you, if you're trusting in Christ, are in Christ Jesus. You see, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who has been identified through the death, burial, and resurrection into Jesus Christ. Remember, we looked at this in Romans chapter 6. By virtue of our union with Christ, being united with him, we have been buried with him, we have died with him, we've been raised by him to walk in newness of life. And by virtue of that, his spirit lives within us. See, guys, the word Christian is the ultimate identity marker. Now, oftentimes I hear people, and, and, and this is okay, right? I'm just, but I want to make a point here. A lot of times it's become very popular, even among evangelical circles, to say, I I'm a Christ follower, or I'm a follower of Christ. And I, on one hand, that's totally fine. But be careful because in our day and culture, it's, it's easier to say, I'm a follower of Christ. See, I, I, I walk in his ways. I want to be kind like Jesus. I want to love like Jesus. I want to serve like Jesus. I want to help the poor like Jesus. Gauge that response when you say, I'm a follower of Christ. So when you say, I am a Christian. Guys, when you say, I am a Christian, you are publicly identifying with your Savior. You are acknowledging that the greatest identity marker that you have in your life is not that you attend church or not that you are spiritual or that you try to live good deeds or you try to follow after the pattern of Jesus, but in fact, you belong to him. That you have been baptized into him. Jesus is not simply someone you carry around with you by your side like your fishing buddy or your co-pilot or whatever. Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is your Savior. You have been united with him, and now you are in Christ. That's what Paul is pointing us to here. And in verse 3 tells us how this is accomplished. Let's read it. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, one of the things that Paul has been pressing upon us, and we've said it over and over again, 
in these first few chapters, these last few chapters, there's nothing wrong with the law of God. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. No problem with God's law, the problem is with us, right? We have been, as Paul says here, weakened by the flesh, which means we can't justify ourselves. We can't be good enough, do enough good things to earn salvation, to merit righteousness before God, to merit acceptance before God. And so God had to provide another way. We, we understand this. You, couldn't, you can't save yourself. God had to save you. How did he do it? Verse 3 tells us. It says that Jesus took on the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, think about what Paul is saying here. See, there was a time, well, really for all eternity, God has been in holy relationship and communion with himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally in communion, always has been, always will be, doesn't have a beginning, doesn't have an end. But at some point in the eternal counsel of God, as man is fallen into ruined by sin, God decrees a plan. And he says, we are going to send the Son. We are going to send Jesus, who has always been God, to become something he wasn't already, and that is man, without ceasing to be God. And the way that he's going to do this, Paul says, is that he came and took on the likeness of sinful man. So what that means is Jesus wasn't like in heaven and then he sent down, and then he has like this avatar that kind of acts on his behalf on earth. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was raised as a man. He was God. He was man. And he fulfilled the, all of the righteous requirements of the law, every single one of them. He lived the life that you and I needed to live in order to have life, but could not. And by virtue of the fact that we sinned in Adam, we looked at this back in Romans chapter five, all of us born into sin and now thus enslaved by the law. But God says, I'm going to send my son. He's gonna take on the likeness of, of sinful man, which means while he never sinned, guess what? Jesus lived in a mortal body. He lived in a body that got sick. He lived in a body that demonstrated the effects of aging. He lived in a body that was mortal just like ours. And he died and, of course, was raised to life and given a new body, a resurrected body like you and I will have one day. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus had to do two things. First, he had to come and live life as a sinless man, just like us. But secondly, he had to die. Look back at verse 3. It says, for sin. In other words, Jesus not only obeyed for us to live the life we couldn't live, but Jesus died for us so that he could pay the penalty so that we would not have to. So think about that, church. It's an amazing swap that we get. What an amazing deal. What an amazing bargain. The life we couldn't live, he lived for us. The death we were going to have to die, he died for us. He took our death, we received his life. That is anything but an equal swap. I was thinking about the time, and for some reason I've been on the, 
on the, on the childhood kick these days. But I, I remember we used to collect baseball cards. And I had, I had a couple that I really loved. I had a Brooks Robinson play for the Baltimore Orioles third base. I had my Hank Aaron card. They were sort of my prize, pride and joy. And I remember one of our neighbors said, you know, I, I've got some cards I'm going to trade for your cards. And he said, I said, oh, really, tell me. He's like, well, I've got a Ty Cobb, a Babe Ruth, and a Honus Wagner, all right? And I was thinking, doing the math in my head, I was about 10. Even then, I knew enough to know that sounds like a pretty good deal. I think a Honus Wagner just sold for about $2 million not long ago. So we made the swap. I took them inside. I was so excited. When I got them inside, I realized... I had been duped because they were, I know it was so sad, Kim, I completely agree, but they were the 50th anniversary, like commemorative cards. Do you know what I'm saying? They were like about 30 days old and I thought they were 30 years old. And it was the worst possible swap anybody could have ever made. It seemed utterly unfair because it was. But church, that's what Paul is highlighting for us here. There has been an amazing exchange that has happened on our behalf because of Christ. In fact, Luther called this the greatest exchange, or the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, regardless of what you are feeling condemned about today, despite your ongoing struggles with sin. Maybe this morning you have deep, deep regret over past choices. Paul says, it's possible, though, for you to know the most important truth of the greatest reality to ever invade humankind. You are not condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when we know that, it changes everything. That'll be our last point. The confirmed result. In other words, what, by virtue of having this knowledge that we are not under condemnation, that it's been secured for us through Christ who lived our life, who died our death, we place our trust and faith in him, what, what do we want to see happen in our lives because of this? That, that's what Paul is getting at here in, in verse 4. Look back there. Paul says, I'll, I'll start in verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now here's the operative phrase, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Because I want to remind us of something, and this is, this is so hard for us, particularly living in a fallen world, in a broken world, which so oftentimes doesn't meet our expectations, can leave us bitterly disappointed, can, can, can leave us cynical and oftentimes in despair. Please understand this. I think this is, this is a life-transforming truth Paul says here. Christianity is not just about getting you to heaven. Christianity, it's about getting you to God. And God desires to have a holy communion and walk with you in order to not just save you, but in order 
to transform you, in order to change you. See, God doesn't want to just save you. He wants to change you. He doesn't just want to forgive your sins. He wants you to be free of your sins. He doesn't just want to give you grace for your sins. He wants to give you grace to grow. And the operative word here is walk. Walk according to the Spirit. That word walk means to be occupied with. Okay? It doesn't mean to go out on a walk. It really denotes this idea of an ongoing, continuous action. When somebody tells you, when you're going through a really tough time, and somebody tells you, you know, Paul, I, I really want to walk with you in this season. What, what, what are they saying? <laughs> there, there's so much in that loaded word, isn't there? I want to walk with you. And for those of you who have had people walk with you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When, when, when people say they want to walk with you, people who really walk with you, they love you. They pray for you. They call you. They text you. They take you out to coffee. They come over and just like Job's counselors sit and are with you and exercise the ministry of presence. See, when we tell somebody we want to walk with them, we're saying, I want to be in communion with you. I, I, I want our souls to be knit together in this season. And that's this idea of this word. God says, I'm not just content to save you, although that's so vitally important. He said, I'm, I want to walk in communion with you. I want to transform you because it's as we change and walk in holiness that the believer comes to experience some of the deepest communion with God. And the, and, and the way Paul says this, that this happens, okay, and this is so important, because it's interesting, Paul moves from the courtroom language of no condemnation, and then he shifts to the relational language of walking in fellowship or communion. And it's, it's important to understand how these two things are linked. And I think, this is, I think this is how this works. Think about early on in your Christian life when you were converted. And, and maybe that's this season for you. Maybe you're a new Christian and everything is alive and new. And you become aware, or God begins to make you aware of things in your life that maybe up to this time you were completely oblivious to. How, how you treat others. What kind of employee or boss you are in the workplace. How do you go about filling out your taxes? What kind of relationship are you going to have with your, with your parents? How, how am I going to handle my money? The, the, I mean, on, what kind of student am I going to be? On and on and on. These are all things that God graciously begins to reveal to us. And by the way, thankfully, he doesn't reveal them all at one time, right? We would just be absolutely overwhelmed. We would be absolutely consumed. But this is an amazing process because as we draw near to God in his word and through prayer, and God begins to reveal things to us in our hearts and lives that are not pleasing to him that are areas of obedience, that are areas of trust. There might be blind spots, things we've never seen before. Guys, let me just tell you, without Romans 8.1, those things will be absolutely devastating to you. You will be absolutely crushed. If your identity, if your security, if your confidence is based upon how things are going or how well you are doing, 
or what degree of faithfulness you've attained to, then when God reveals these things to you, you'll be crushed. You'll be absolutely devastated. But when Romans 8, 1 is your song. See, when you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, there, there's no condemnation for me. That, that there is no threat of punishment. There is no impending doom. I belong to Jesus. I, my life is wrapped up in his. There's nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. Then he, here, here's amazing thing happens. When God begins to reveal those things to us and show those things to us, we have a great sense of joy. We have a great sense of peace knowing, God, this is hard, but this is good. I know you are going to work like a skilled surgeon on this area of my life. And the reason I can bear under this is because of you. The reason I can bear under this is I know that my standing with you is not changed. My relationship with you is not changed. My security with you is not changed. And this is a reflexive process. But see, when, when we don't know Romans 8.1, when it's not our song, when, when, we, when we are bearing our own sins and bearing our own condemnation, we're not gonna wanna come to the word of God and have it speak to us. We're not gonna wanna reveal hard parts of our life to other people. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna confess our sin to God. We're not gonna confess our sin to our spouse. We're not gonna confess our sin to our brothers and sisters in our community group. We're not gonna do it because it's devastating. It's threatening. It's, it's earth shattering because our identity is so wrapped into that. But God says, that's not your identity, Christian. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, if you're experiencing condemnation this morning, let me just ask you, or let me just remark, maybe, just maybe, it's because you haven't drawn near to Christ. And when you don't draw near to Christ, you will not experience the grace and mercy and forgiveness and freedom from God that he has designed you receive from him through his son, Jesus Christ. Run to him. See, as I think about this, and as I mentioned before, all of us sit in different pools of condemnation in various areas of our life. And the question is, we have to do something with that. We're gonna go somewhere with that. We're gonna do something with that. I mean, we can go to drink, we can go to food, we can go to vacations, we can go to hobbies, we can go to media, we can go to the computer screen, we can pour our life into our kids, we can pour our life into our families, anything to get this off our minds, this condemnation. And God says, quit striving, quit struggling, and start resting in me. Church, this is the gospel. And it's not just for non-believers, it's for all of us. Do you know these 13 words? Are they your song? They are the words applied to our hearts that change everything. Let's pray.